City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Radio, and we're on city limits. It's the um, it's the fourth Wednesday of the month, so we're going to have um, just a, we're going to have one guest today a little later on. But of course, we're working under kind of strange circumstances. In fact, the tar and cement we just sang about, there's loads of it between me and the studio today because I'm in fact at home. You'd probably tell because I'm on the phone. Um, and in fact, I will kick off in the normal way. The I'll just put this phone over here near the cup. It's a Chinese cup, very small, so you won't hear. But people need to hear this pouring of the tea. Hang on, here we go. Right, I hope you could hear that. Um, our guest is going to be Helen Vandenberg, a well-known community activist, of course, in the northwest suburbs, who's going to talk to us about a number of issues out there. For instance, recently, CleanAway, the company that has been most recalcitrant about cleaning up the Tullamarine toxic waste dump, recently got fined, but Helen's not too happy about that, actually. And we're going to talk about the impact of... Um, of the contaminated soil that they're trying to dump in the western suburbs yet again from the Westgate Tunnel. There's also, of course, St Albans where they've found a whole estate built on a contaminated site and um, and all sorts of complications arising out of that. And I will talk to her also about Sustainability Victoria, one of her very favourite bodies, um, which I'm sure when I mention it to her, she'll um, <laughs> she'll give you tell you what she thinks of it. Um, so there's plenty to talk about about, and it's again it's going in in many ways toward the fact that we have certain suburbs that that cop it in Melbourne and certain suburbs that don't cop it, but one that shouldn't cop it, of course, is Portsea, because as we all know, it's uh, one of the more elite suburbs of Melbourne. If you live down there near the beach, you're you know, well off, and if you're a Prime Minister, you can go for a swim and get lost at Cheviot Beach. Um, but I think it's a question of the the of, of coming, coming home to bite, because, um, and it's doesn't help to say we told you so but in each of these cases we told you so but unfortunately the damage is done and currently the elite of of Portsea are complaining about the state of the bill they have been for a long time but they've had sandbags there for 10 years trying to stop erosion they're now trying to do some more dredging which might help to replace the beach but of course the beach was wiped out by the shipping channel um shipping channel dredging back um more than 10 years ago now at 11 or 12 years ago, you know, 08, 09, um, to deepen the channel for bigger ships. And people at the time said this would cause enormous damage to the beaches around, but we were told, no, it was all okay. That scientists, science had once again worked out that it all would be well. And, of course, Port Seas felt the bunch of it. I suppose it's, in some ways, it's poetic justice, but it's not really. But it does show that the... It does show that uh, they, we cannot trust governments when they promise that certain things won't uh, have an impact. And the other one that we complained about all that many years ago now, we had a campaign against the just-in-time uh, program brought in by the supermarkets because at that time they used to put their have their stock um, really stock for replenishing the shelves on site. Uh, but they worked out if the whole 
the whole supermarket could be used just to sell things, just to have stock to be sold, and you in fact stored it elsewhere and bought it in by truck, then it would it would increase your profits and um, we complained at the time primarily on a transport question at the time when we complained because we argued that it was going to put more and more of those big trucks on our roads which are already suffering from an excess of uh, freight vehicles and vehicles generally I guess Um, but again this is one where it's come home to roost um, because uh, one of the problems they're facing at the moment, of course, is keeping the keeping the uh, the shelves stocked. And had they had the capacity to, of course, have the um, have the reserve stock on site, then that wouldn't be as serious a problem. It would still be a problem because of the way people are bloody well carrying on. But nonetheless, it w- it, it has come home to roost in terms of the just in time system they bought in working against them very strongly although that doesn't stop them of course because people are raiding they're making fortunes anyway so good on them um with with the coronavirus uh it, it we mentioned last week also um shane mcgrath from housing for the aged action group on our program last week talked about the uh the the campaign they were running to have to have evictions of tenants uh stopped during the um, prevented during the uh, the whole crisis as long as it lasts, and it does seem now that owners are moving in that direction, despite the fact that the Property Owners Association is uh, a bit upset about it because you know it, it it could get out of hand very quickly. They said, <laughs> "Oh dear, poor things." Um, but the government is now starting to consider consider seriously the fact that uh, tenants should be protected during this period. And there have been, I think, on, on other radio stations and ours, you're hearing pretty awful stories of people who are in real trouble. And this, of course, goes to the um, the fact that, that business just can't handle what's going on. It's interesting that in an article this week in the Financial Review, Jennifer Westacott of the Business Council of Australia, uh, she said, business is the glue that keeps communities together and economies growing. Just as businesses stepped up during the bushfire crisis, companies are paying smaller suppliers immediately and being understanding on repayments. Companies are being as flexible as possible to keep staff safe, introducing working from home arrangements and split shifts. They are paying staff, including casuals who were forced to miss work and taking steps to retain staff. Well, that last sentence isn't actually reflected in the massive queues outside the doll offices this week. And um, that, of course, also reflects, again, the fact that the government couldn't handle it and the, the, the government computers couldn't handle it and the whole system has broken down. So all these people are being left spending hours either in the queue going nowhere or trying to get through on phones and getting nowhere because the whole system has simply collapsed. But <clears throat> interesting that Jennifer says that's the glue that keeps communities together because she's one of those people who knows absolutely that business is so much more efficient. That's why so many of our utilities have been privatised. Uh, the bloated hand of the public sector simply can't handle this stuff. And in fact, it has no role in business whatever. Business is the business of business, laissez-faire capitalism. And therefore, it's also interesting that the glue that keeps communities together um, is in a bit of trouble at the moment. It seems to have come unstuck, the old glue. And... Um, we're finding that uh, suddenly the people who don't believe in government intervening in business want government not just to intervene, but to pay for it all. And they're uh, screaming and yelling, but at least they're, they're thankful that all this is happening, I'm sure. And indeed, just to... Um, I'm going to have a sip of tea, by the way. Hang on a tick. 
Hey, well, there you could hear that slurp that time. Um, interesting that um, the government announced new a new package uh, totaling $189 billion. And if you look at where the money's going, I worked out that $163 billion of it uh, is going to business in some form or other, handouts to business, and and that going to the unemployed or the pensioners or those who really need the money desperately is $24 billion of it. Um, so 163 billion to business, 24 billion to welfare, and as they call it, uh, and the the other 1.2 billion that doesn't add up to 189, but the other one is the access to super, uh, asking workers to take up the 20,000 of their of their super, and because it's tax free, it's assessed as 1.2 billion cost to the government, presumably, and the taxes they won't get out of it. But um, there's also large question marks. I would think about workers being asked to take their superannuation to pay for the crisis that's come about. And of course, um, capitalism is based on crisis after crisis anyway, but uh, it, uh, it's, it's uh, asking workers to, and workers either to take their super or some, many workers have been asked to take sick leave or, or, or holidays when in fact they don't want to. And it seems to me grossly unfair. And it seems grossly unfair also that in many of these businesses, the, the government's being asked to pay for what the work of the bosses should be paying for anyway. And it's lovely to see how they, they're so, so thankful, though, for what they do get. For instance, last week, the government announced a huge package to help the, um, in fact, the $715 million package to help the airlines, who poor desperate airlines, and the next day, Virgin Australia boss Paul Scurra said the federal government may have to dip its hand in taxpayers' pockets again to bail out the aviation industry. He welcomed the relief package but said everybody in our industry may need further government support to survive the slump in demand for air travel. Um, so really thankful, good old Paul, grubbly to hear. Um, also, you'll be pleased to know, because we've long been a fan, of course, of, um, of that wonderful con contributor to, to world thought, Paris Hilton, of the Hilton family. Now, I know that family no longer is involved in the hotels, but they're one of the elite hotels of the world as they see it. Not as good as Trump, of course, but... Um, but they've come out and asked for government help. Um, they've said they're heading for a cliff with 70,000 direct employees such as cleaners or hotel receptionists expected to be laid off in the next three months. And so they've come out and asked for government help for themselves because they all care about their workers so much, and that's the, that's the important thing. And also, as these handouts are being, are being um, handed out, um, the thanks come again. Tax breaks, wage support, bailouts among pleas from business groups. So even as the government was announcing all these packages, the business groups, including Alan Joyce from Qantas and the National Bank and all these other groups, are creaming out. Chief executives, chairmen and business groups are calling for tax holidays, wage support, suspending super and even government bailouts to help business stay afloat and keep staff employed. Well, if they're keeping staff employed, I'm wondering what those long queues are at the, uh, as I said before, at the doll office who, who are going nowhere anyway. They're just in queues and going home again. Um, 
Again, a, um, a bloke called Ambrose Evans Pritchard, the international business editor of the Daily Telegraph in London, he wrote an article, I won't read on, but the headline is Unshackle Central Banks to Save Capitalism. So again, he's asking for central banks, which are government-owned, part of the bloated, inefficient hand of the private, of the public sector to save the efficient private sector. In other words, uh, I think we're seeing that capitalism really can't handle anything uh, like this. And, uh, we're, and companies that are calling out for help uh, are the same companies that regularly announce these huge profits. So I don't know what happens to the profits. Um, well, perhaps they should put a little bit aside or something. Um, but anyway, that's uh, where they are. And even John Holland, the uh, well-known construction company, uh, infrastructure company, he's the chief executive of a bloke called Joe Barr, says the construction industry is on the brink of collapse and is not sustainable uh, after the builder of Melbourne's Westgate Tunnel and the Sydney Metro reported a loss, an annual loss. Tier 1 contractors in Australia are not making any money and governments across Australia keep having successive project cost blowouts. We are in the midst of Australia's biggest infrastructure boom, but as an industry we are teetering on the brink of collapse. Oh dear, poor John Holland. Um, but keeping successive project cost blowouts, they in fact tender for the work and then the work like with the Westgate Tunnel you find the contaminated soil and the cost blows out but then they, they blame the government for all that when in fact, and I'm sure there are government projects that do blow out but I suspect it's under tendering in the first place to get the job and hoping when the cost does blow out the government will come to the rescue and um, and sort you out. But anyway, that's uh, just a few thoughts on that. Uh, there, there, but there have been some positives coming out of this coronavirus uh, business. For instance, landlords in retail centres where they've got Coles and, and Woolworths and the big supermarkets who are making a killing out of all this, no pun intended, um, they, they uh, according to the Financial Review estate page, they're they're doing well. They're going to have to put up their rents. They'll, they'll benefit from more people coming through the centre or more business going through the centre, etc., etc. So retail landlords are doing well. And the best news of all is that because of what's, what's happening, if, if the richest 200, the, the rich list that comes out once a year of, of the filthiest rich of the filthy rich Australians were done this week, then Gina would be back on top because because uh, the resource industry is doing well uh, despite the coronavirus, whereas some other industries are not doing so well because of the coronavirus. And a, a number of resource people, Andrew Forrest, etc., have moved into the, the top range. Um, Clive Palmer's moved into the top range, the top 10. Uh, but Gina's now hit the front. So isn't that wonderful? She's knocked off poor old Anthony Pratt and the Pratt family. Um, and just as a, a final comment on that... Um, um, a bloke called Cliff, uh, Chris Richardson, who's uh, often quoted as a, a financial expert, Deloitte Access Economics, um, discussing the stimulus, he's, his only comment was, this is a large amount of money going into the economy in a short period of time. Now, that is absolutely brilliant, isn't it, when you think about it? I mean, Chris gets paid a fortune to give us this sort of economic analysis, and we would never have known, looking at the size of the package, that this was a large amount of money going into the economy in a short period of time. But thanks to Chris, we now know it, and we're better off for knowing it. Uh, but the, the dole queues go on, and um, despite what business says about itself and all the things it's doing... Um, 
it seems to me that uh, that the dog cues would indicate something else again. But um, who knows? We'll we'll find out in time, I guess. Um, last week, I, last week also um, Wednesday or Thursday, it was on Wednesday because it appeared in Thursday's newspapers. The um, the group of big big end of town lawyers and the Australian Institute of Company directors. Uh, called for insolvency laws, and you know it's illegal, of course, for companies to operate while insolvent. But they have called for that to be also um, suspended during this crisis. That companies should be allowed to to operate while insolvent. And it struck me that if it's bad for the economy when the economy is going well, for insolvency to operate and be and be a crime and damage the economy, then if the economy's not going so well, <laughs> then it's a pretty smart move, I would have thought, to say, well, we'll bring in something that's, that's damaging in best of times uh, in the worst of times. But anyway, they're all asking for it. Uh, the Institute of Company Directors and the big, big end of town lawyers like Minter Ellison, etc. And good to know that was on the Wednesday or Thursday. And two days later, the government announced that we'll place a moratorium on insolvent trading laws to help businesses manage the sudden economic shock, etc., etc. So they got their way. And now you, if you're running a business out there or a 3CR, could, we could operate a 3CR insolvent, but we mostly do, I think. <laughs> so that takes care of that. Um, the other one, the other interesting aspect to all this, though, is the analysis by the by John Roskam, the head of the Institute of Pub, uh, the Institute of Public Affairs, that wonderful, wonderful body, um, and he his his line is just extraordinary. He talks about the fact that workers and unions have run this country for so long, but that might now change. There's the very real possibility that the public might realise that many of the things the politicians have spent the past decade talking about are in fact utterly irrelevant. Climate change being the most obvious example. Similarly, the public might come to the not unreasonable conclusion that much of what the government now does and what the government requires regulators to do has done practically nothing to improve the productive capacity of the country. The product, the product of nearly three decades of uninterrupted economic growth is that red tape is now Australia's largest industry. The almost guaranteed recession the country is about to suffer will make a few other things crystal clear. It will reveal what everyone has always known about our industrial relations system, namely that its primary purpose is to increase the wages and conditions of those in work. Australia's industrial relations system, which includes us having literally the world's highest minimum wage, does nothing to encourage employment. And on he goes, no need to read on, but obviously the answer is to lower wages and uh, lower wages and conditions of workers and uh, and make the Industrial Relations Commission a little more friendly toward employers, Given which is interesting given the last 28 appointments to the Fair Work Commission have all come from the employer's side. Um, and perhaps through all this, the the the, the optimism uh, award should go to um, the International Olympic Committee, which only four days ago, a headline, Tokyo Games to go ahead in July, says IOC, and we all know that as of now, <laughs> they're not going ahead. Um, so, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's that. Now, just before we take a very quick break and go to... Um, 
and go to um, Helen Vandenberg, who will actually make some sense of the morning. Um, I, I thought I'd quote this because um, three years ago or two years ago, Mike, I mentioned this on here a few weeks ago, Mike Kane, the head of Boral, won the Business Person of the Year in the Financial Review for his campaign to take on the building unions over an industrial dispute in which he was, it was almost a secondary boycott situation with him. And he was highly praised for the way that he defended capitalism against these dreadful, dreadful workers. And, um, well, since then, uh, things have gone pretty bad for Mike. He's getting out this year. The, since February, shares have halved from 509 to 233. There's class actions against them, against them because they made an American um, purchase or, or takeover, which has failed very badly. And in fact, over that, and because it was argued they didn't give the correct information at given times, there's a class action against them. And so it's just awful to see. And the headline, in fact, on this story was Boral Chief Executive Mike Kane's world of pain worsens. And when you read that about poor Mike, I think you realise that coronavirus is nothing compared to the pain poor Mike must be feeling. It's just awful. Um, there's several stories about EBAs and employment, but I think we'll, be we'll move on to Helen because I've been raving on long enough and I'm going to have a sip of tea and we'll be back after this break. You're listening to 3CR. We really are in unprecedented times and 3CR, as your local community broadcaster, is trying to do our part to minimise the spread of the coronavirus throughout the community. At the front of our minds is protecting the most marginalised and vulnerable, but we are still here. And we'll continue broadcasting 24 hours a day with radical alternative content throughout this period, but things will sound a bit different. Some programmers will present their shows on the phone and we'll be finding creative ways to bring you our regular programming. So stay tuned, stay safe, and be kind to each other. Are you ready to be inspired by local grassroots history? Connect with the stories of Friends of the Earth's 45 years of creative resistance. Everything from anti-nukes in the 70s, road blockades in the 90s, Indigenous solidarity, feminist politics, and so much more. Tune into the podcast at 3cr.org.au slash acting up. And be inspired to create a fair and just future for all. Community radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR digital and streaming and podcasting online at 3cr.org.au. Australian music needs your help. Music festivals, concerts and local gigs have been cancelled due to coronavirus. Artists, crew and music workers have lost their jobs and don't know when their next gig will happen. We're all facing the sound of silence, but you can help. Visit thesoundofsilence.com.au now.
up for social distancing, staying at home, washing our hands regularly to prevent the spread of the coronavirus, I wondered how people who were experiencing homelessness were faring in the midst of this crisis that continues to unfold. Greg Denham represents LEAP, Law Enforcement Action Partnerships, here in Melbourne. He's been involved in health promotion and prevention in the alcohol and other drug field for many years, from policing, HIV, education, policy, advocacy work, and more recently, street work. So I thought he'd be a perfect person to speak to, to find out what's been happening. Now, I spoke to him by phone last Friday and began by asking Greg Denham, what this all means for people who are homeless. You know, we talk about self-isolating, but for many people that's just not a possibility. Many people, particularly the ones I've uh, got to know over the last 10 years working in the city of Yarra and the city and other places, can't self-isolate. They don't have a place to live for a start. They don't have many options when it comes to places to stay. So they may be sleeping around, they may be sleeping rough, they may just be opportunistic sleepers, they may be sleeping in the streets. So... Many of them have significant and chronic drug and alcohol dependency issues, and so therefore they're still using drugs. The whole notion of um, self-isolating and uh, 
taking precautionary measures like washing hands and this type of thing is just far beyond the realms of possibility for many people. I know that there are some accommodation options, um, often not ideal. Are those places, you know, putting in place the practices to prevent transmission of the virus? We're still um, in a situation where many of those places are difficult to get into. They are attempting to implement some procedures around hand washing, that type of thing. But for many people that are street-based, getting into a place to stay is a, is a challenge in itself. One of the difficulties that many face is that often these, um, these accommodation places have very strict rules around uh, you know, people can't use drugs or alcohol or be affected by drugs or alcohol. So they're immediately eliminated from uh, being able to use those facilities. It's just that one of those issues that we have um, faced for a long time is that many programs don't respond effectively to people who use drugs. So, Greg, what resources are available to people who are sleeping rough or on the streets, don't have stable accommodation? What can they do? What are they doing? That's a really good question because over the last uh, week or so, Several of those agencies that do provide support to people who are sleeping rough, you know, many of them actually have closed or restricted their hours of service. You know, day by day we're seeing agencies affected themselves by the policies that are being introduced. People who work there may be being affected or maybe um, coming from overseas or maybe exposed to COVID-19. We are now seeing those agencies that are there to support people closing their doors. The agencies that are remaining open have more and more pressure on them to support more and more people who can't go to other places. So it's unfortunate and it's a real risk, I think, that many people who probably have increased risk of being infected with this virus can't get into a support agency. Some of them are just out of prison, just being released. And in my experience with the HIV issue overseas and, and TB, is that uh, prisons are a breeding ground for viruses and we don't know, obviously, how many people may be affected by COVID-19 in prisons, but it would be astonishing if there wasn't. And uh, if that's the case, then it's likely to spread very, very quickly within the prison system and then people will, will be released out to the community. I think there's been some really important initiatives recently, sometimes in the United States, and I heard recently in Australia, that people who are maybe subjected to a prison term for a uh, relatively minor offence aren't being sentenced, which I think is a great idea. I think we need to stop putting people in prisons at this stage and look at ways in which we can support them in the community. Has the government, either state or federal, taken any action uh, to support or protect uh, people who are homeless or people who are in prison? What action, if any, has been taken? Well, I'm not aware of any at this stage. Um, it's very difficult to find out what's going on in prisons in Victoria because um, governments do not tend to uh, provide open communication around what sort of services are being delivered. And, of course, many of them are privately run. So we, we are guessing, really, in terms of what might be delivered in health and welfare programs. So, so, so we're just in the dark, really? We just don't know? Yeah, we are in the dark. But we do need to know what's going on. And it's really important that we have open communication about what health services, what um, additional risks for people who are um, incarcerated and being released. So prisons can be a breeding ground. And once a person becomes infected and they're released into the community, then that's um, an added risk for um, you know the community. Now, we need to identify any risks and, and deal with them. 
Yes, and certainly, you know, people need to be tested if they're coming out of prison, I would think. Of course, yes. Yeah. But what about for people who are homeless, though? Are there any additional resources being made available to workers who work in the street or the people who they see? Anything happening there? My understanding is, is that there's going to be additional resources uh, put towards housing, which is great. Now, where that housing is and what type of housing it is, we're not sure about it. The workers and a lot of people involved in that direct service delivery are finding a kind of a pressure cook environment at the moment. You know, there's a lot of people out there who are quite stressed. It's a stressful uh, situation most of the time without having this virus in the community. But a lot of workers are now starting to recognise that amongst the clients there's an additional level of stress and anxiety. And I think a lot of that is to do with you know, a number of services restricting their hours or closing their doors. So it means that if there's a stress and anxiety, there's a potential to increase risk of violence. And that, of course, brings the police in. And then if the police get involved, there's a good chance that someone might be arrested. And so the process goes on and on and on and on. You know, I think we need to start pouring money into dealing with the people that are most at risk so that we can look at some early intervention and primary prevention programs to ensure that those people are safe, but also the rest of the community isn't impacted as well. And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Greg Denham from Law Enforcement Action Partnerships, and he's telling me about the situation facing both street workers and people living on the streets in relation to the kind of practices they have to put into place to prevent transmission of the coronavirus. I was wondering what education and resources were being provided for people who are homeless and those who work with them. Showing that there's reduced risk of infection, and that includes things like hand-washing regularly, you know, not touching your face, and all that sort of basic information that the government's providing at the moment is being reinforced. And there's been a lot of communication to agencies around how their staff can protect themselves. Messages are being conveyed. What's getting through to people on the streets? If they're on the streets, they're difficult to engage at the best of times. And many of them can't get access to agencies because, you know, they've had difficulties in the past. You know, they're often um, marginalised, they're often stigmatised and discriminated against. And I imagine they're afraid. Of course they're afraid, that's right, exactly. They have often have um, difficulties understanding what the issues are and those basic recommendations in terms of preventing um, the virus spreading. So they go into an agency and they go into a drop-in centre or, or that type of program that does specifically work with that particular group, then certainly they will get information when they attend to that agency. But as I said before, some of those agencies are closing down. Every day there's a, an agency or two that are unable to operate any longer because of a variety of reasons to do with this particular virus. So they have to engage with an agency most of the time or they have to be working directly with a worker who can pass on that information. But they're very under-resourced. For many people that are street-based, they don't have the resources, they don't have the knowledge. Even access to that knowledge, you know, through radio or television. Many of the workers out there are doing the best they can to convey that information. The people that the agency staff work with don't watch TV, who don't have a radio. Many of them don't even have a phone. They don't engage or communicate with uh, mainstream uh, media services. So they're often quite ignorant of what messages are being conveyed on a whole range of issues, not just COVID-19. What needs to happen? What does the government need to do? We need to ensure that we maintain the current level of services. We need to ensure that we uh, provide um, basic resources, such as sterile hand wash, disinfectant, engaging street-based people around um, looking at accommodation, providing accommodation, 
provide support through GPs. One of the strengths of the HIV campaign was to engage with groups of people who were most at risk. People who are living on the streets or in a rough will have particularly important information. I mean, they will know where they go for, you know, to use the toilet, I guess, showers, if that's even available. They will know those places and, uh, and what might be done there. They will. It's very fast on the ground anyway, regardless of whether this virus exists. There are a, there's a lack of resourcing around providing that type of support for people, whether it's in the city, whether it's in the inner city area. There's just not the resources available and we need to expand those resources. We need to provide opportunities for people to, to have a shower, to do their laundry, speak to um, a medical health professional. You know, we need to get those resources out there. We, we need to get them out there today. We need to provide these resources straight away. We can no longer turn our back on a particular group of people because they live a very different life than many others. We've got to understand that people who around the streets have significant chronic, not only drug and alcohol issues, but mental health issues. Often they have learning difficulties. Just listening to what you're saying now, even the ability to read for people who've had their education interrupted, we can't assume that people can even read printed information. Exactly. I work uh, quite a bit on the streets, have over the last 10 years. We can't assume that everyone can read, everyone can comprehend what we say, everybody has the ability to problem-solve issues. Because, quite frankly, many people can't. I spend a lot of time around North Richmond, um, Abbotsford. still see people out there who have multiple and complex needs which cause them significant health issues. And that can range from um, overdose, problems associated with injecting other types of infections, poor diet, poor teeth, inability to eat healthy food. You know, uh, online I was looking at something the other day and a doctor was recommending that, you know, you get plenty of sleep and you eat good food, fruit and vegetables. Well, I'm sorry, but many people who are on the street don't have the opportunity to eat that type of food or can't eat that food. A lot of it is um, based around soft, fast food. When you start to talk about the health and medical conditions of people based on the street, it's just endless. Sight issues, hearing difficulties, many are carrying injuries from conflict, many are subjected to family violence, you know, just the list just goes on and on and on. Well, Greg, I won't keep you. You had a busy morning already. Oh, actually, this is my first day off for about six days, just trying to busily do a little bit of shopping and still fascinated by the uh, trips to the supermarket to see the empty shelves. So I think we'll have to put up with that for a little bit longer. But anyway, um, it's interesting time. It Very is. And thank you so much. No, thank you. And a big thank you to Greg Denham for making time to speak to us here at 3CR on his day off. Okay, and that was, was Judith Peppard from Monday Breakfast interviewing Greg. And uh, just the name Peppard, by the way, uh, George Peppard, of course, was the love interest all those years ago when Breakfast at Tiffany's opposite Audrey Hepburn, but I rather think her career rather outshone his, as has um, the career of Helen Vandenberg is on the line. Helen, sorry about um, the delay. <laughs> Helen, a couple of things we're going to talk about. One is that... Um, that Clean away the rather recalcitrant company that owns the Tullamarine Toxic Waste Dump got fined recently, but you're not happy about it. Oh, well, that's not surprising. Um, no, um, as I mentioned on a previous program, they absolved themselves from the obligation to fulfil all the requirements of the EPA um, post-closure orders on them, right? Well, to put it bluntly, they chose what they do and what they didn't do. And we got a good auditor who plays a straight bat, who bases his 
conclusions on fact and speaks plainly. And he said, and he listed what they didn't do. The EPA got that list of what they hadn't done and therefore that equated to a fine of 8500 However, the auditor had also put in a few other expensive moves, suggestions like, well, instead of doing your audit once every three years, you're going to do it next year and the year after so you can learn it. Basically, learn how to do this properly and we might let you off the hook. So that's expensive. I guess if I want to look on the silver lining, CleanAway's been named and shamed. They got off light. Come July 1, that law goes into place and uh, fines will be significantly larger. In the current crisis, I'll hold on to July the 1st. But <clears throat> I also have two letters to write, both to the CleanAway Board and to EPA to express our community's total dissatisfaction with that. And we do not understand why <clears throat> the EPA... Uh, we believe that they should be taken to court. Now, under the old system, apparently, judges take a fair bit of convincing. Well, they've got their laws to live by. Uh, and maybe not having done all of the audit isn't enough to win a case at court. I don't know. But by gee, after July 1, it's going to be time for those companies to realise that they will have to prove their innocence in court and they need to take it seriously. They have an impact on public health. When you pollute the environment, you pollute every living species life support system. Pollution is, has got to be seen for the continuing crime it has been and continues to be. And it must become a crime in their minds when they do this to innocent people, waterways, our life support system, water, air, soil. I've had enough of it. Well, in fact, of course, um, the, to, to, to make them realise it's a crime, they, the, the penalties would have to be such that they, they would try to avoid them, whereas 8500 they probably think it's worth paying that every year to avoid doing anything. Yeah, well, I, must, I have to give a, you know, full-on... I'm prepared to give this auditor pretty close to a gold medal because it's not yeah. fun for a clean way to have to go to the expense of two successive audits. So I think he put a punch there. Where I think he stood his ground. He told them it's irresponsible. He said, go and learn how to be responsible. They've got two years to learn it. My God, nobody gave any, any of the people out there two years to learn how to adapt to polluted air. Our cancer count's gone from, in 2010... It was 144. There are 228 people now. We have had no publicity, but the community report is there. The facts yeah. are there. We are collating them and we will shame them with them. Yeah, well, I, I went on a, a cruise up the Meribyrnong a few Saturdays ago. The river without an entitlement to a flow. Well, I found it interesting because I didn't realise there was so much parkland right along the Mirabalong, I must admit. But anyway, uh, but they showed us where the Steel Creek, your your creek, came into, uh, when it, you know, we saw it coming, where it came into the Mirabalong. And I thought, well, all that pollution from all those toxic sites that gets into those waterways is now, you know, heading out to sea ultimately along the Mirabalong somewhere there. But anyway, yeah. Um, the Maribyrnong is a beautiful, beautiful, dramatic river. She's turbulent. She has dramatic little gorges. She flows quietly. She has steep escarpments. It's truly magnificent when you step back and look at the wonder of the West. And our yeah. little creeks are the same. 
right? Yeah. And there's, if you just lift off the city from the ground and you imagine how beautiful this was when Wurundjeri were in charge, full of yes. game, high grasses, beautiful food, clean water. As I said to my granddaughter once, you could have, once upon a time, you could have bent over and drunk the water out of that creek. Oh, she goes. Well, what happened was the next reaction. I said, well, I'll explain a few things. She said, well, how are you going to stop that, Nana? We have to. Yeah, I, I had that experience at Bougainville many years ago at the Java River just before the, the, the mine started. Beautiful, oh. clear water and drinking out of it. And within months, a photo of it, and it was now a, a, just a sludge, a viscous sludge going out to sea. The, the mine ruined it in about two months totally. And the thing is, Kevin, water, we have the same amount of water on the planet as we had when we first got water, whenever that was, right? And there's two satellites in NASA spinning around in parallel, orbiting in parallel, I should say, and they can measure mass. So they know where the water is at the moment. They know how the, the total volume of water in the Earth is the same and how is it being distributed and where. We haven't lost any water. It's mm. just relocated and humanity has forced it to their industry yeah, wars. Yeah. Your point also about the cancers and the and the death by um, by inhaling the pollution. Um, a report came out just this week uh, that between October one and February ten, they they claim that four hundred and seventeen excess deaths occurred because of the bushfires. Um, oh, and that is such an unfolding tragedy. And one hundred and twenty. Yeah. 120 in Victoria, but given that's happening from those bushfires, I mean, your, your suburbs cop those fires so regularly that, um, that obviously the danger occurs out there on a regular basis. Kevin, um, and, you know, I once wrote in a report, industry created the so-called wealth of Australia. The West, they took the lands of the West and of the West, they gave us dirty jobs, dirty air, dead creeks. They sacrificed the health of our environment and therefore our health. And it's got to stop. And we've got to find a way of living together, caring about everybody and making sure we help the earth heal because there's no future for us unless this planet is healthy. I mean, I'm saying things to people who already know it, so maybe I should just be quiet. Yeah, well, there was a report again this week that some viruses now, something like 90 species of frogs in the past few months have disappeared off the face of the earth, apparently, because of some dirty thing. Um, I rang the EPA years back, back in the 80s and said, listen, the frogs are disappearing. And the guy says to me, oh, look, it's a sunny day. Go out and enjoy it. This is lovely. Here you've got all this green space. And I'm thinking, he doesn't, he's a scientist. Well, he's supposed to be a scientist. Well, I assumed he was seeing he's working for the EPA, but it was probably a mistake. But, um, look, there's, there's young people in that EPA who are well-trained, but there isn't the leadership that's required, and it's got to be courageous leadership. It's got to know what the values are that we're protecting here, and they're very important. The leadership, the, 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 there's been a failure to... For, for 10 years, we've listened and we've been patient with and we've tried to support as best we can the transformation of the EPA into a modern regulatory enforcement agency. 10 years! Yeah, 
And, there's, and it hasn't happened yet. Now, there's a, a sense in the... It's not just the EPA or the personnel of the EPA. I'm not saying that they are responsible. How could they be responsible for the chronic underfunding? How could they be responsible for the fact that people say, oh, well, if you've got a job, that's good. You shouldn't create a job that poisons something. And there's a perception in the community, Helen, that the EPA tends to work far too closely and friendly with industry and polluters, etc. Uh, yes, there is. And, I mean, there's also the belief in the community that the government doesn't take our pollution issues seriously. I mean, where, where, what has the government been doing? Why is it that industries were allowed to set up and throw their filth, you know, leak it straight into rivers? All right, we've been clawing some of it back. Why was it allowed to be so slow? Why is it always cut, cut, cut? I mean, it doesn't matter whether you look at the, the, the failure to build care for the most vulnerable in our community. What kind of a species are we if we don't care about the injured, the, the disabled? The, you know, look, there's brilliant people out there and they do brilliant work like the current, you know, the medical professions. You've just got to hand it to them, the research that's going on at the Peter Doherty Institute. There's brilliant people out there and that information is for us, for all of us, and everybody matters. I'll never understand. I've never understood it from the time I was a kid why one person could matter more than another. Yes. And, and government, I think governments are getting a really good lesson now on what their true responsibility is. I wish them well in adapting to the new reality. Um, I hope they're strong. I hope they're clear. And I hope they keep life is the primary thing here. And, I, and don't, I, when I it's all over, go back to capitalism as usual. Oh, for um, God's sake, how could you? Well, they, they, they can, unfortunately, but we'll see. Um, look, there's an ad in the paper last week, um, an employment ad for various positions, but the, the spiel on it is sustainable, sustainability Victoria supports Victorian communities in transitioning to a circular and climate-resilient economy to deliver the state of the future. Recycling Victoria, a new economy, will transform the waste and resource recovery sector in Victoria. This bold new policy will lead a change in Victorians' behaviour and mindset from a culture of waste to a culture of respect for resources, leading organisations to adopt circular procurement, investing in new infrastructure and creating new jobs for the future. That, that sounds quite wonderful, Helen. Yeah, it sounds... It reminds me of the days when I went to a primary school and I learnt the catechism by heart. No, I thought that was fun. Yeah, there were 74 <laughs> questions in there and how quickly could I learn? Yep, I did that. Who made the world? Did God made the world. We all know that, yeah. And did I know what I was saying? No, no. Hello. Yeah, I'm here. Are you there? Hello. Yeah. Can you hear me? Oh, sorry, you're back now. Yeah, I, I couldn't hear you. I don't know if we were going over there or not, but yeah. Yeah, I uh, can yeah. hear you now. Well, look, uh, I got really angry one day, so I told my local member in uncertain clarity, sack it. They're not doing the job they were created for. So in the meantime, now, they've picked up on something that's been running around for the last 25 years. Track your resources. The, uh, it's just another one of those to totally frustrating experiences. Well, I think they've picked up the spin words. Now, could they please draw an infogram of what that means? Because I'm sick of spin. We know we've got finite resources. 
we know we can create terrible things like plastic. Oh, well, I've got a Ventolin that I use every day. It comes in a plastic container. don't know why it has to come in that, but it does. But anyhow, we've been begging for decades that we look at reducing waste because we as practical people, listen, I've only got this much material. It'll make a skirt. It won't make a dress. So what's the best skirt I can get out of it? That's how people look, practical people look at things. They come up with word upon word upon hollow word and no substantial action. Do I have faith in their capacity to change? No. Do I have faith in their capacity to leave? I challenge them to prove me wrong because, by gee, I'd have a party if I was wrong. I'd be so happy to be wrong that this time they can do what they've do the objective of that group, move to sustainability. What you unfortunately, buy, Helen, yeah, go on. Go on. What you no, I was going to say, unfortunately, we're almost out of time, but you said they're not doing what they were set up to do. What were they set up to do? Uh, they were set up to help us move to reducing waste, to keeping less, make sure less goes into landfill, more got recycled and reused. That's their job. Did they do it? No. Did they issue lots of magazines about it? Yes. Did they have conferences on it to educate the people? I don't know who got invited, but I guess they did somewhere along the line. There you go. I want a practical, plain English speaking, we will do this, this, this. I can't do that, that, that. Mm. You, you don't mean a plan of action, do you, Helen? I mean, actually do something. Yeah, look... Um, my heart's breaking today for all those people out there who were going through what thousands of people went through in the 30s. In my family, there's been four generations. I know how much harm comes out of the pain that's being delivered. Intergenerational impacts are profound. If you're like yes. me, from four generations of people who've learned how to survive, you're lucky. You've got resilience. But there's so many people out there who've never had to face a day like this in their lives, and I hope no. I hope that we look after them. Well, looking at the queues, it might be day after day before they even get it, get anywhere because um, and the, the whole yeah, system's Kevin, breaking what, down. This, this whole idea that, you know, oh, well, we'll just tell them you don't have to do this, you don't have to do that. They haven't even realised they're not being listened to. Why didn't the politicians step back and let the emergency services people talk? Look, I was watching the New South Wales guy the other day, and he's crystal clear. And if he gets a stupid question from the media, he chucks it aside and says, not a priority. That'll happen. That's not important. The big issue here is... And I just thought these guys could teach the politicians so much about clarity of communication, strength of... Per and the whole body language of these people is, I'm strong, I know how to get through this, Come along with me, right? It's not talk down. It's my arms are, you know, it's it's incredibly different from what we see from politicians. Mm. Anyhow, they've got the, got the job, whether they want it or not now, and we'll see who measures up. Well, that's what we have to do. They're saying, yeah, look, we're out of time, unfortunately, Helen, but um, look, we'll do a follow-up, obviously, and, uh, and um, we'll keep yourself well as well at the same time. Oh! My doctor said my lungs have never been in such good condition. I must have known it was coming. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Helen, look, th thanks for your time.
this morning. And can I, before I go, can I just thank the staff at 3CR, particularly Gab Reed this morning, Gab, um, but all the staff there for the work they're doing trying to keep the station on air in these difficult times. But um, and again, thanks to Helen Vandenberg. Okay, and thanks to 3CR for always being there. Okay, well, thank you again, Helen, yeah. Um, okay, that's it for City Limits. Next week, it's transport if we get to air. I'm presuming we'll, we'll see what happens next week. But um, anyway, here we are. That's this morning's program. Thank you for listening. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Community Radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM. 3CR digital and streaming and podcasting online at 3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.